Claudia Rankin quips in her essay, The Racial Imaginary. One way to know you're in the presence of, in possession of, possessed by, a racial imaginary, is to see if the boundaries of one's imaginative sympathy line up again and again with the lines drawn by power. In this episode of the DWF podcast, Rouge Amedi, Denise Chapman, Genevieve Greaves and Odette Collada unpack the practice of racial literacy and discuss the impact of race and place in one's imagination, work and storytelling. Hi everybody, I'm just going to lift this up a little bit. I think. Hi, uh, can, can everyone hear me? Yeah, hi. Well, thank you guys for coming out um, to the fantastic Emerging Writers Festival. Very excited uh, to be here and to be a part of this um, creative, creative um, hub. So many, so many fantastic things happening. Um, so to begin with, I'd like to acknowledge the First Nations, first storytellers and owners of this land. Uh, that we're standing on the lands of the Kulin Nation, elders and ancestors past and present and emerging and uh, in the room with us today. Um, sovereignty on this land has never been ceded. Um, and the attempt to erase and deny sovereignty and the anxieties that come from ongoing colonization shape the form, manifestations and essences of this country's racial imaginaries. Mm. Um, so that's the topic of, of today, is the racial imaginary. So, um, so there is the, the practice of acknowledgement, but now, you know, in, in terms of the topic today, that acknowledgement um, and the racial imaginary are in uh, a, a deep, deep um, dialogue. Mm -hmm. uh, Claudia Rank, and I'm just, uh, she wrote, for those who are really interested, hopefully you all are, but there's a fantastic, <laughs> fantastic piece by Claudia Rankin on whiteness and the racial imaginary that's just available for free online and is a must read. Um, but she, she writes, one way to know you're in the presence of, in possession of, possessed by a racial imaginary is to see if the boundaries of one's imaginative sympathy line up again and again with the lines drawn by power. And I think that's a really, uh, that's why this conversation to me is so urgent, um, important. Mm -hmm. I have a baby there in the background. It's a baby. <laughs> Layla. Um, how, the question, you know, how much of what we create and are created by in a colonial country lines up with oppressive power relations and is constrained by the colonized racial imaginary. So, um, you know, the conversation today is about exploring um, this idea, these ideas and the tools to unpack the impact of race and place um, in, in your own, and I invite you all as we talk to, to start that, you know, I mean, when I say start, I'm hoping uh, it, it's just an ongoing process for many of you, but, but having that constant reflection um, for our own imaginations, our work, our story, our storytelling, um, because certainly, you know, for myself, um, I do, I, a, a large part of the work that I do now um, is around questioning and, and exploring my own sort of uh, colonised, uh, you know, coming to terms with, with having a sort of colonised mm -hmm. racial imaginary. Um, and the, the very first, uh, before I pass it over to the panellists now, um, who are an amazing lineup of, of women that I'm, again, deeply honoured to sit here with. I, I will just start with my own positionality because a big part of um, racial literacy and, the, you know, exploring um, one's own racial imaginary is to, is to really reflect on positionality. Um, so I was born in Melbourne um, to two migrant parents. Uh, my father is from Alexandria in Egypt and uh, my mum was born in London, but all the family was Irish, so we had a lot of Irish-Egyptian um, influences. Um, but, you know, they, the ideas of, of the fact that we're on First Nations land was not raised up in our education, to our mm -hmm. consciousness, and there was a lot of um, pressure to assimilate as well. So even though my close family were, were all Egyptian or living very close to each other, um, 
the, the rest of the neighborhood, the schools, the popular media were all, were all white. And I've certainly um, can see in my own creative writing the impact of that um, being produced before I ever questioned these, these kind of ideas. So um, I did a major in literature and was just writing this sort of whiteness in my writing. Um, I now teach at the University of Melbourne in creative writing and racial literacy, um, and I and also work with um, the, the amazing Genevieve Greaves here, uh, and we do some workshops around that. Um, I'm just going to introduce the panellists uh, because <coughs> it's you know, an amazing opportunity to get to hear from them. We will have a Q&A um, at the end, but um, also there's a hashtag EWF for those who, who Twitter, uh, who tweet. So Raj Amidi uh, is a writer, editor, senior campaigner at Colour Code, an independent national movement of First Nations and migrant communities organising and campaigning for racial justice, uh, and has recently been appointed to the board of the Human uh, Rights, Arts and Film Festival. Uh, her previous work includes editing Acclaim magazine, A New Luxury, and writing for the likes of Saturday Paper, SBS, Gusha, Swampland, Mianjin, and Vault magazine. So thank you so much for, for being part of this. Uh, Denise Chapman, Dr. Denise Chapman, is a digital media creator, spoken word artist, and critical ethnographer who lectures in children's literature, early literacy, and technology at Monash University. Mm. So you've got some, some storybooks there. <laughs> <laughs> Denise uses oral folk tales, children's literature, film, and interactive digital content as windows. I really like that word, mm. as windows for critical thinking and transformative emancipatory opportunities. Um, as part of the Learning with New Media Group, Denise's current research prioritises communities experiencing marginalisation and employs participatory, visual, creative and narrative methods to illuminate uh, inequities for social change. It's a really powerful work. Um, and Genevieve Greaves is an award-winning educator, curator, filmmaker, artist, oral historian, researcher and writer who has accumulated nearly 20 years' experience in the arts and cultural industries. She was the lead curator of the First Peoples Exhibition, Bunjalaka, um, Aboriginal Cultural Centre at the Melbourne Museum. You must go and visit Bunjalaka and see that exhibition if you haven't already. I don't think you can be in the city and, and miss that. Um, Genevieve has worked with the Koori Heritage Trust as an oral historian and on Mission Voices and First Australians and produced an incredibly powerful documentary around domestic violence as well called Lani's Story. Um, she teaches at the University of Melbourne and is, is currently undertaking her PhD in Aboriginal art, frontier violence and memorialisation. She's a passionate supporter of community, engaged creative practice and teaches these methodologies to emerging arts and cultural workers. So, and I, I have seen her teach and, and it is really fantastic work. So, and maybe a, a, a bit of a, a welcome to our panellists <laughs> as, we, as we embark on this conversation. Um, so to begin with, I, I am going to pass over um, first to Genevieve, just to introduce um, perhaps how the racial imaginary impacts your work and also how you even come at this concept and term um, that we're talking about. Yeah. So I too want to acknowledge the country that we're on and, um, and acknowledge also what Odette said, that we, we have to work against mm. these, um, these powers that be in terms of colonisation, which is ongoing, mm. and which the racial imaginary is very much packaged up with. So yeah. I'm very interested at this point in the tools to dismantle those systems and sharing those tools. Um, I, I have some ways in to those tools, and there, you know many people across the movement, um, across our society have different ways in of um, shifting and undoing that. But my, my great interest is in decolonisation and those sort of theories, and also in racial literacy, which I've learnt a huge amount from Odette, and also her collaborator, Diane Jones, who do amazing work in this space. I remember first talking to, um, or listening to Odette and Diane talk about racial literacy as a tool, and I, I said to them, I don't know anything about it. You know, like it's a, a, a whole chunk of theory that I've got no awareness of. And they're like, yes, you do. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and if you at all um, non-white, you know, in this country, you do. You have a, a very strong sense of how um, race operates in this society. And, of course, the foundations of this society are 
based in, in notions of race, of the superiority of some people over others, um, allowed the invasion of this country and their continued colonisation. Um, so it's kind of central and integral um, notions of race to, to who we are and how we operate and what we do in our daily lives and, and the structures that surround us and who they include and who they exclude and how they work. But we're not taught these things. Um, it's not a, a language that we're generally aware of. So even if you are extremely raced and you're under surveillance, and I'm not because I've, I've got fair skin privilege, so I can, you know, fit in many spaces easily and I'm not under the same surveillance that members of my family are um, with darker skin. So, um, but if you're in any way raced in this country, you've got a strong awareness of how that operates, but maybe not all the, the tools to dismantle it. So that's why I, I love working with Diane and Odette and, and sharing the knowledge of um, how race operates and, and what it means. Same. <laughs> <laughs> it's very exciting. And I'm, that's why I'm happy to be here to have this conversation too. Great. Thank you so much, Denise. Yes. Um, I would also like to acknowledge the traditional owners of this land. And I, and I think that I, I just want to say I'm so excited to be here, you know, to, to be in this space and creating a space and creating a conversation that really needs to be had. Um, so I see this as the, the start. This is something that we need to do. I think for me, I'd like to talk, um, you know, as a person um, who uh, is read a certain way, um, and I'm a complex read um, when people visually read me. Um, my um, first encounter uh, here in Australia with my parents in tow was one that we were spat upon and and told to go home. Mm. And I was brought here, actually, you know, um, one of the reasons why, well, I was, my husband's um, Australian, Australian citizen, but we, we came here because I was here to teach teachers to teach. Mm. We didn't have enough mm. people to teach teachers to teach. Mm. And, um, and so I'm, uh, how I'm read by my students who are predominantly, um, persons who are um, white female um, Australians um, who may not have traveled as much, mm. um, how I'm read initially is, is very confined, mm. very bound. Um, and I see myself as an or as a, a storyteller, uh, uh, a storytelling sapeur, if you will, um, which is uh, really a term that just I'm loud I'm loud about uh, how I, I see myself and how my experience is. And so I thought, uh, as a spoken word artist, I thought that perhaps maybe I'd share a little bit about some of my experience and that bound, bounding and how I have to sort of tap dance um, around it. Um, and this is a spoken word piece um, entitled, he said, I just gotta touch it, gotta touch it, can't help myself. Touch it? Touch what? Dear God, no. This man who signs my activities, my responsibilities, my PDO sugar. What the, does he know that that's my crown? Treat me like the man on the sardine packed commuter train and the one that, near the cafe window pane and the, why did you do that, why? Oh, that's right, oh, I'm just, that's right, I, I'm just a woman. No, lower. Oh, okay, I'm just a black woman. No, lower. Okay, I'm just a black woman with no current pubs. No, lower. A black woman with no current pubs who says garbage, not rubbish, jello, not jelly, bathroom, not toilet or loo. Where's your Milo? Don't you want some mayo? Do you really carry around hot sauce called slap your mama, slap? I wish I could have stopped him. My mask, is it on straight? Is it straight, not nappy? Grins? not lies. Is my mask okay? 
my mask, my tap dancing academic stage mask, because y'all know I can tap dance. It's a little bit, oh, <laughs> thank you. So that was um, how I'm read by a person in a position of power who mm -hmm. felt quite comfortable and confident around other people yeah. to just touch it. Yeah. I just got to touch it. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. Mm. Extremely powerful. And you totally brought the racial, I mean, the racial imaginary is always in the room, mm. but you've just absolutely described mm. and put it right front. Thank you so much. Thank you. Um, so Thank you. where do I begin? I'm, I'm an able-bodied, neurotypical, queer Kurdish woman who uh, <laughs> came to Australia as a refugee. And unlike the many conversations about the diaspora experience, I never felt disconnected to my identity. I know who I am, um, and I know where I stand. I think that I think for a lot of indigenous peoples that have been internally displaced or rendered stateless by the state or by a dominant um, group, you, the only means of survival is the oral storytelling and the narratives that you pass on and you hold on. So wherever you are, your roots are always there. And there was a particular experience, um, you know, uh, it's a, it like it being rendered stateless and then being removed from your homeland is a very kind of traumatic experience. We're very, very um, familiar with that. But... Um, and, and the, uh, the ongoing kind of mental negotiation and consequences in, uh, for that, for your health. But there was one point where I was at breaking point many years ago, and I imagined my feet deeply rooted into the ground. But part of that also of knowing is also the, the, kind of the absolutely suffocating nature of whiteness in this colonial state. And it is almost immediate when you step out onto this land, this instant uh, negotiating with that whiteness. And there are two ways that I, I embedded that in myself without even knowing. The first is right now my work is around political campaigning and movement building around racial justice. And one thing that I always notice, and I, you know, I've been running really intense um, campaigns, especially in the last nine months around several elections. Um, but one thing I very much notice is that when we think about engaging with politics or the politic, um, people of color often, and I'm not talking about First Nations peoples, but I'm talking about people of color who have migrated often will reimagine themselves as white and then they will speak as a white person. So they will reinterpret and um, reconform to this kind of assimilationist project without even realizing. So part of my job in movement building is to actually situate people and remind them of where they are and then give them permission to engage with the political system or to have a political voice outside of that imagined whiteness um, because it is so oppressive people often will only give themselves permission to engage unless they can repeat that kind of white um, narrative. And then the other way, and I noticed that in myself growing up as well, you know, this kind of performance, this pantomime of whiteness, and the closer you are, the more proximity you have to whiteness, you would often feel more comfortable doing so. Um, and then the second thing is telling my story of displacement for through the white gaze and through consumption. And so as someone who is white passing and is read in like a very different racialized way than I would have been in Iraq, um, there is Im an immediate sense of uh, power and inclusion through the project of whiteness. And by, by that, it is forcing me to tell a narrative for that consumption that I'm, I'm constantly uh, demanded of to, to perform that. And I think it was when I was 22, um, about eight years ago, um, I decided to stop doing that. And I don't tell my story. And in a way, 
that's kind of regaining my power, that I share myself and I share that journey through people that I have mutual reciprocity. But outside of those prisms, I'm not there to perform um, this deep pain and trauma that I want to articulate myself outside of that trauma. But those are two ways that the project of whiteness and the repressive nature of whiteness has influenced my storytelling, but also the way that I engage with the external. Wow, thank you so much. I feel like in each of those responses, um, you know, we, that just makes me want to dive deeper with the, they're, they're, they're incredibly, um, I guess they open up to the next question, that, that, uh, which is around, and it sparked in the lead up, just to share with you guys, in the lead up to this event, we were sort of, um, rather than the first thing of just having kind of some questions, um, you know, you know, sending through quotes and ideas of when the racial imaginary is, you know, is has been captured really um, powerfully. And one of them was by Toni Morrison. Um, and she, she writes on the racial imaginary, I want to draw a map, so to speak, of a critical geography and use that map to open up as much space for discovery, intellectual adventure and close exploration as did the original charting of the new world without the mandate for conquest. And that idea of charting and, and, and mapping, which does also have very colonial historical um, undertones, really kind of what I, what I, I always have been so influenced um, by Morrison's work myself in terms of it's like a call to actually um, make the invisible visible, to actually start mapping, to get a sense of what we're dealing with. And she does that so brilliantly in the piece playing in the dark that 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 quote is from mm. where she maps the white um the sort of the way whiteness works in the um literary canon mm. um but then it she's also i feel is an invitation to think about the kind of tools that we use to unpack um and navigate the racial imaginary so that's my next question for you guys is with all of this that you've just so profoundly spoken to um you're also all engaged um and i think that's a really shared uh, shared um, element of this panel that you're all really engaged in education and activism and teaching as well. So, so maybe if you wouldn't mind speaking to how you take your experiences, your your, your deep knowledge and and the tools both to unpack your own perhaps, but also then unpacking um, it with others. Sure, I'll start. <laughs> so um, the idea of mapping is a really interesting one because as you were mm. talking, it was making me think about um, a lot of the work that I do in sort of frontier violence and that um, 19th century largely violence but into the 20th century and only one form of violence. You know, there's, there's lots of different forms of violence that are ongoing but particularly that physical violence that characterised that period. Um, there isn't a map of all the violence that occurred in that period. <laughs> Like, that's kind of extraordinary when you think about, you know, the number of maps that there are and how many different versions of maps and how much work has been done in the academy and in different spaces that we do not, to this day, have a map that actually tells us where every massacre occurred and where violence occurred in this country. And that's kind of symptomatic of a lot of different spaces. Um, the, the lack of work, like the erasure, the invisibility, the denial, which is completely ongoing, you know, and I had this moment with one of my students where she came and said to me, she said, everything you say, there's a voice in my head that tells me not to listen to you. <laughs> she oh, said, wow. everything you say, like, I, I have this voice say, it wasn't that bad. It wasn't that, it wasn't like that. You know, it's like, this, she's, and it was really interesting because she could, she could, you know, actually locate it and then communicate it to me mm. um, and we had this moment and I was like that's kind of extraordinary thank you for sharing that with me because that's what you've been taught you know yeah. that's there's a, a, a complete culture of denialism in this country people are taught to actively push us away push our knowledge away push our shared histories away that's an ongoing individual journey that people take not only talking about the state and all the systems of the state and all the different ways that happens so we are so far behind as a nation like we are um, we have so much work to do in so many different places you know in melbourne's such a progressive city and there are you know 520 monuments 510 of them are to dead white men that surround us, you know. We are so 
so far behind in truth-telling and in reckoning with history. And so I feel very strongly that it's not just the work of First Peoples um, to do that. And that's, that's why I really like the approach of decolonisation, because it's a space that everyone can enter into. And it, its purpose is to make colonisation visible, because it's largely invisible. Mm. Um, it's everywhere. It um, surrounds us, it, you know, it, it, it frames how we interact with one another, like mm. the food we eat, our relationships, everything, and it's not sort of spoken about or made visible. And then how do we shift that? And that's the work of everyone, that's not just our work. So I'm very interested in, in education for that reason, to get people up to speed, you know, on what's going on and what's around them, and then try and give them some tools and also permission to break down these systems of oppression that, uh, that we're actually all enmeshed in, not just First Peoples. Hi, I'm Izzy, the Artistic Director at the Emerging Writers' Festival. Thanks so much for listening to our podcast. We hope you'll check out the rest of the Digital Writers' Festival at 2019.digitalwritersfestival.com. You can listen, make and play and we've got ghosts of the internet, new machine learning tools for writers and experiments in digital storytelling. We've also got some really special webinars, including uh, one with one of my favourite audio producers, Mitra Kaboli from The Heart. And if you're enjoying our podcast, we love you right back. So drop us a review, recommend us to a mate and hit subscribe wherever you like to listen. Uh, yeah, because it, it actually just made me think the last time that I was sitting here on a panel um, for a pretty intense night actually was on White Fragility with Robin D'Angelo. Mm -hmm. And I just remember the, the thing that I really, um, uh, you know, uh, one element of, of D'Angelo's work is that she uh, constantly emphasises we need to break down this binary of um, racist, bad, non-racist, good. And so mm -hmm. any discussion which might have an implication that there is racism in, mm. you know, um, say my own racial imaginary instantly will create this, oh, no, 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 push away, mm. denial, anxiety, anger, mm. because that would put me in the bad category. We need to complicate that very simplistic binary mm. when in understanding mm. um, that exactly that, how erasure has happened, mm. you know, and, and brought, us, brought us to this point mm. today. So, yeah, that's really, really powerful. Thank you. Mm. I loved that you were talking about um, this one student that said, there's a little voice in my mm. head that tells me, don't listen to you. Mm. Don't listen to you. Mm. I find that with the tools that what I'm trying and with the spaces yeah. that I'm able to, to, to sort of talk back or clap back at mm. that voice mm. um, or to get folks thinking about it, is um, through children's literature. Mm. And, um, uh, you know, we're really underrepresented, um, you know, persons of color in children's literature. And so, um, and teachers have to have a library. That and and they're right. This is a this is a mapping of how they they want children to view the world. I mean, children's literature. I get really excited about children's. You you know, what is it good for? Absolutely everything. <laughs> okay, yeah. it, everything. And 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 I still remember the time that I first saw someone at the cover of a book that looked like me. I still remember that. Mm. I was eight years old. Mm. It was 1978. Mm. I kept that book. I kept that book. I never brought it back mm. to the library. I never brought it back. Mm. I, wanted, I wanted my hair to look just like hers that she had. It had. I, that was my book. Mm. And I tell that story along with other stories mm. to help sort of map out a sense of how teachers, how parents are thinking about race yeah. mm. and may not be realizing that they're thinking about it. Who are they privileging? Who's, who's, who's on the cover? Mm. Who's on the cover? Mm. Are we getting kids to think about their thinking? Mm. Um, and it's quite complex for me as, as, a, as a black woman who's American People, 
you know, that, that American part makes people feel a little uncomfortable. It really, really does. And if the pushback usually is is really about, um, you know, if I you know, if I ask them and they're like, oh, I've got this great book and it's got on the cover a black person, so I'm using it. And I'm like, that's nice. <laughs> Let's talk about it a little bit. You know, you know, why are you using it? You know, getting them to think about, you know, is this quality just because it has a a person on the cover, um, why? But I, um, I think that the pushback, when I get a pushback on a book or a analysis of a book, usually, I, and I'll, I'll share, I'm like, oh, well, let's think on, let's, let's think about that, right? And they're like, oh, you Americans, you Americans, you know, just messing it up. Um, and it, but it's it's not so much that you know that's not really what they're saying. It's 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 really pushing back at my blackness. But it's easier. And if anything, people are it's more palatable for people to say, oh, it's the Americanness that that I'm pushing at. Um, not sure, yeah. And um, so I I hear that that voice out loud in students often. Um, and boy, that, that's a whole book. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> uh, a whole book. Um, but being able to give them things, you know, even looking at this book, um, Bell Hook's uh, book, Happy to be Nappy, people are like, oh, well, that's the American term. That's not, and I'm, why am I sounding like, I'm an American, I was going to But um, I'm from New York originally, but, um, uh, uh, and grew up in Virginia Beach, one of the most recent um, mass shooting areas. Um, but um, nappy is a complex word, so it's about being able to get our students to actually think that some words might have different meaning, might hold different meaning from people out, you know, who were perhaps who are you know, new to the Australian context. And that words mm. are powerful. Words are very, the, language is the carrier yeah. of culture. Mm. And if you are hindering, mm. you know, constraining mm. who the protagonist, or perhaps maybe who the antagonists are in the yeah. books, then, you know, what is that? You know, so my tool is really in, Helping teachers to curate yeah. these these books in ways that um, will really uh, be a space for critical discussion, but also my you know storytelling and my um, spoken word mm. is my way of being able to to make that invisible visible. That's um, yes, mm. really really important. Mm. You you're going right for the the seed before it sort of you know <laughs> you know to look at children's uh, literature. Is um, is the kind of obvious mm -hmm. place in some ways to start with thinking about where where we, we grow mm -hmm. um, these imaginaries from. It mm -hmm. makes perfect mm -hmm. sense. Well, and, and it yeah. affects their writing. So how yeah. if if they end up, it, it just it affects the writing. That's you know? right. And I think that's something like in terms of a tool, maybe we could uh, think about in this space for everybody. And we do this with racial literacy. Is go back to your first memories, you know, mm -hmm. as a tool, like. Who, you know, and, and this is around the positionality work. How did this, how, you know, when you're little, what, what are you getting? What do you grow up with? Mm -hmm. And thank you so much. I think um, one of the pivotal moments in understanding my racialization is that I am a victim of colonization, but then a beneficiary of colonization. Mm -hmm. And I have to acknowledge um, all of the mostly Aboriginal women um, who were generous enough to have written pieces, spoken, but also being part of my broader communities who had articulated this and I had benefited from that labour. And it's like that duality, you know, because if you're, if you're always imagining yourself as in the victim mentality, you never actually engage with a tangible kind of power dynamics. And those power dynamics are inexplicably connected. So racism is connected to capitalism, capitalism is connected to patriarchy, patriarchy is connected to ableism, it's like all intertwined. And I think the second pivotal moment is when I started to engage with prison abolition. 
and the carceral system and the notion of like punishment as inherent to sustaining and maintaining those systems of power. Mm. And, and how even though you may be in a, in a movement for liberation or justice, that justice looks very uh, carceral. It's filled with punishment and exclusion mm. and um, control. And so how do you build um, community and movements that are moving outside of that? And that's really complicated. And that means that you have to have really uncomfortable um, conversations and you have to navigate your own um, implicit biases. And I think that perhaps like we're at a point where um, outside of First Nations justice systems as people of color, we're at a point where we have to kind of break free from that um, victimhood and, um, and look past like the scaffolding of trauma that we've experienced and imagine ourselves outside of that. And part of it is also imagining ourselves outside of acting from a place of pain and trauma. Mm. And so where does our, um, a racialized identity, like how does it exist outside of that pain and how do we move past it? And I feel like that is an ongoing conversation and it is so difficult because we've been so deeply trained in that. And by being by, by being punitive, we're also reinforcing those kind of like um, dynamics and that's what I'm constantly negotiating. Yeah. yeah, thank you. Again, so much in that <laughs> that I would love to tap into. And I knew this would happen because I have a whole lot of questions and, and we're already um, at the time when I'm going to open it up to all, all of you. Um, but, but to me, that just kind of speaks to how rich and... Uh, how needed we need to keep having these 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 mm. these mm. conversations. Um, Claudia Rankin started this Racial Imaginary Institute um, in the US. Um, mm. It's online. You can have a look at Racial Imaginary Institute, and they're putting all this um, fantastic stuff up. And I'd love to see an Australian uh, Racial Imaginary um, exactly. Institute mm. that we can really sort of expand this moment of conversation and and mm. and. Uh, yeah, create more dialogue. I'm going to pass it over for questions now, which, um, which I, I guess I want to say maybe a really good opportunity here for when you're... Um, I'm, I'm very much looking forward to hearing questions, but when you're thinking about your own questions, even what you're asking and how you frame it, it's an opportunity to think how much of your lens is coming into... Uh, what you're about to say, and I don't say that to then close everybody up, I say it to hopefully make people just go, mm -hmm. ah, you know, and, and some, have something interesting happen potentially. Um, so because, you know, the thing I've learned, and I also want to acknowledge my, my um, racial literacy is work that, that is done very much in partnership and, and leadership with Diane Jones, who's an amazing Anunga artist. Um, and and sh in, it was in dialogue that I really learned, ah, what I think is coming out of my mouth, I haven't even thought about. Um, mm. So that's a, a, a provocation, but also an invitation. Um, so with that, um, I'm hoping that has not left a silence, because <laughs> I can do that in this country. Oh, we, we do? Do we have roving mics? Yeah, great, thank you. Um, Genevieve, a uh, question to you. Um, if I didn't hear you, I mightn't have heard you correctly, but. I think in the past um, it's been frowned upon for, for instance, non-Indigenous people to write about um, First Nations issues and things like that. If I heard you right, you don't believe in that, and if if that's right, yeah. why have you why have you of a different opinion? Well, I was speaking very generally when I was talking about um, allyship, you know, and people working together to dismantle. Um, colonial systems and structures. So, you know, in that, um, encouraging people to reflect really on whiteness and on colonial structures, there is a role for non-Indigenous people to um, reflect very deeply and to help dismantle the power structures that exist. That, that doesn't mean you then can write about Indigenous people. <laughs> that's, that's a separate space and a separate thing. So I'm, I'm encouraging non-Indigenous people to reflect on non-Indigenous history and power structures, because the key issue there is representation, which is also um, 
a, a, a space of colonisation and a space of power and domination and also a space of resurgence and revitalisation and power and a space in literature and film and art that we've taken and claimed and we have, you know, amazing filmmakers and writers and poets who are presenting our stories, diverse as they are, in, in our ways. But that doesn't also mean that there's not a space for non-Indigenous people within that. <laughs> um, but it's, it's how you enter into those spaces, what kind of relationships you're forming. Like, I'm really interested in intercultural spaces and their new innovative spaces that sort of form between peoples and between communities. And an example of that is, like... Um, False Claims of Colonial Thieves, uh, amazing book of poetry by Charmaine Green and I can't remember the other author's name. <laughs> it's embarrassing. So, yeah, one, it's a wonderful book because they're both coming from the same physical space but from entirely different perspectives and reflecting on the same things and occurrences and events and people but from completely different cultural positions. Mm -hmm. And it's an amazing work in that way, because it's bringing in these very particular positions. So, you know, I would encourage people, as everyone has been on this panel, to find your own position and your own story and your own voice in all of that and not be trying to enter into the minds or experiences of others, because that's, as we know, there's so many examples of that in this country, <laughs> <laughs> of it not working. <laughs> you know, and I, I reflected, I was reflecting, I'm sorry, I don't want to talk too much, but I'm reflecting on that book, The Secret River, which is a really controversial version of that and how I think that's such an important piece of work in that a non-Indigenous writer was reflecting on her own history and how that's um, a colonial history and a history of violence. But in doing that, she silenced every Aboriginal person in that story. Because mm. mm. every Aboriginal person in that story had no voice, effectively, you know, and, and in the, 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 the theatrical version of that, people were speaking a language that the audience couldn't understand and were essentially voiceless. So how could that have been done in a different way, you know? How can we present voices in, in more interesting ways? And who gets to present voices. Yeah, yes. totally. Thank I, you. Yep. I think that question, I, it was so funny because at the back, uh, at the back I said that's going to be the first question. Um, and uh, it's a question about, I think positionality is so important. The practice of naming who you are and what biases you bring to the space is incredibly important. It's empowering, but it also articulates, we're not talking about diverse voices, we're talking about power and privilege and dominance. And so when we name it, then we can tangibly work with it. I always look back at Edward Said's um, writing on uh, Orientalism, the major work, but then his consequent pieces kind of grappling with this about the dominance of Western ideology and identity and how they have created an alternate imagination or an alternate reality of the pe people outside of the West. And so that's very much affected people in the Middle East, Africa, Asia, etc. And it is about this inferiority, whether you like it or not, it is so deeply embedded in the way that our literature frames itself. And so it's a question of that, of that kind of literary and cultural dominance and who gets to define who, but it's also a question about structures and institutions. Who has access to institutions and structures? What, by entering spaces, not naming your power and privilege, you're actually denying others. There is like very little oxygen. And so what happens is that when you are an other and you're constantly you know, pushing up against these um, against this dominance, you're wasting a lot of your energy. Tony Morrison, you know, mm. mentions that racism mm. is about like a distraction, a use of your energy, a misplacement of your energy. But you're pushing up against these and denying these falsehoods rather than being able to articulate your own racial imaginary, your ability to articulate your own identity. And so you're wasting resources in the people who should have the voices, but also those people often don't have the structural access, the the monetary access, the um, the you know like contacts and 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 people in, in places of privilege that can kind of give them a leg up. So the more that you enter and dominate spaces, um, the less there is oxygen for the other 
to actually create themselves outside of your imagination. Mm -hmm. Thank you. I was just going mm. to, to share that imagine a child, that being a child. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, very often people, um, um, I, I think I'm, I'm, my concern is usually with the teachers and how they are um, snuffing out um, what a child might be sharing. And it would take an awful lot for a child to, mm. to um, you know, to push back on something that they don't even, you know, they, they're not even cognizant of. Um, mm. And so um, as teachers, it's really, it's, it's a real powerful space. Mm. Um, and I was mentioning diverse mm. literature, um, mm. but, um, you know, uh, Caucasian children need diverse literature too. Mm. Yeah. They need diverse literature. They need to be able to see who can be the protagonist. Um, but it's very complex for um, teachers, um, or rather for children, to be able to push back on that. Um, I um, and that's. But you know, that's where we have to have teachers who are uh, able to to put themselves in check mm. and to know that there's structures of power. It's. Thank you. You know, mm. all those responses are are, are so um, useful because, I, and just to quickly say, in creative writing classes, this is this question. It's almost an obsessive um, mm. uh, question about writing the other. And there's some fantastic work out there by Janine Lean, Other People's Words, Alexis Wright, and also uh, Claudia Rankin's piece, <coughs> Whiteness and the Racial Imaginary, that I'd really recommend reading if this is um, of interest because it she. Uh, Claudia Rankin in that piece moves the question from can I and this idea of restriction on, on voice that gets people very into a loop of, um, uh, you know, which, which is not, not that productive into, mm. well, why? What's the desire? What's the desire? And then that leads to a lot of, like, uh, uh, opportunity for that self-reflexivity. I think we've got time for one more question and then, um, yep. Oh, sorry, just at the front here. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> Um, I'm very, very white, um, and I'm a little bit afraid that um, in sharing my question, it's actually a dilemma, I'm, I'm going to expose to the world my naivety and ignorance, mm -hmm. and I don't want to do that. I actually have just completed a, a novel on my great times five grandfather, who was born a slave of African heritage in America, mm. and he was also on the first fleet to Australia. Mm. And it's a story that I'm absolutely passionate about because I also think it, it puts on the record that, Austra that Australia was found like um, the first colony by British, wasn't just British. There were 13 mm. Africans, in fact. It was a very diverse colony. My concern, my anxiety, and it's, it's been there since the first word I wrote, is that I'm writing about a man of African heritage. And how do I know that I'm not just tramping through all sorts of, you know, creating a, a, a my field for myself? I, I'm not quite sure how to express it. How do I know I'm not clumping on other people's sensitivities? Yeah. Mm. Mm. I, I perhaps the framing, <laughs> yeah. perhaps perhaps the framing is, okay. So um, I was running a workshop the other day um, of uh, like uh, people from refugee backgrounds telling their stories, and one of them was like, "I feel really guilty because I came through through a humanitarian visa, and there's so many people who've de dealt with a, you know, um, dangerous like uh, detention system, and I, you know, I feel kind of, you know, and it just feels like the question is coming from a place of guilt and worry about sensitivity when really you should be starting from a place of justice. Like, what are you, wh what are you in uh, bringing to light? What is the sense of justice? Like, what are, what are the what are you unpacking? Are there barriers or misconceptions that you are giving voice to that you have come from a place of wanting to, um, yeah, break down kind of like uh, either biases or, or um, norms or, you know, like what, what is the thing, like what is, what is the outcome of telling that story, mm -hmm. you know? And so that outcome of that telling that story is that 
uh, Britishness and um, the penal colony was a very brutal experience, but we, in our racial imagination of this country, the penal colony and the colonizers were all white. And so what you're doing is you're bringing a sense of justice that you know, it is more than that, that there is nuances, that the trauma that birthed this colonial state was also birthed with the hands of people who would later be harmed even further, that their descendants would be harmed, but then also be privileged by. That's the justice that you're bringing into it. So perhaps reframe the question. I, I have, um, because of time, um, maybe we can also talk more about it. Um, but I do have a book that I would like to recommend. It's a brand new book, and um, it's called The Dark Fantastic, um, Race and Imagination from Harry Potter to the Hunger Games by Ebony Elizabeth Thomas. Um, and um, I, I think that that book can be of help. You know, well, that's actually a really um, excellent place. We, we will need to wrap it up on, but because now I see the Institute, the Racial Imaginary Institute with these resources, with these conversations given, um, space and, and oxygen. Mm. I really like that term. Um, thank you so much uh, to our panelists. Thank you, <laughs> thank Odette. You, um, with their brilliant work going forward. Uh, and thank you all for listening. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening. We hope to see you right here online for the rest of the Digital Writers Festival program. This podcast series was put together by our brilliant program producer, Lynn Nguyen, and the audio was produced by the fantastic Ahmed Yusuf. Our theme music is the magical Huntley's Please from their EP, Songs in Your Name. You can find them online as Huntley Music. This episode was recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri and Bunurong people of the Kulin Nation. We acknowledge that First Nations peoples are the first storytellers of this land and that their sovereignty has never been ceded. We pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging and to the elders of the lands this podcast reaches. <laughs>